Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Banal with BanalofAmerica.com's Banal of America Audio, Season 1. This week, it's November 12th, 2005. Our guest, Grant Cameron. He's one of the most esteemed researchers in the ufology field today. He's been in the field for 30 years. He started in 1975 as one of the principal investigators of the Charlie Red Star UFO flap of the mid-70s up in Canada along the border. From there, his investigation led to the story of Wilbur Smith, who was the head of the Canadian government's UFO research investigation project Magnet. And he culminated with an in-depth investigation of U.S. presidents that's ongoing today at his website, www.presidentialufo.com. And he covers their relationship with the UFO secret, what they might have known, news stories. It's, it's a wealth of information. He's held in tremendous regard by many in the ufology field. He's a serious researcher, so I'm really happy we had the chance to speak with him. This interview was conducted less than two weeks ago, folks. It was recorded on October 31st, 2005, Halloween night. Grant Cameron, Banal America Audio, Season 1. Let's take it away. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I want to welcome my guest, Grant Cameron. He's a native Canadian. He's been in the UFO field since 1975, so 30 years. He's seen a lot. He's done a lot of research, and uh, he's just been through the whole system here. And his website is the critically acclaimed presidentialufo.com. I can't speak highly enough about this website. It's got a wealth of information. And uh, Greg Cameron's one of the most respected UFO researchers in the field. I've saw him at X-Conference 2, and I'm really happy we can bring him to the Banal of America audio listeners. So welcome, Greg Cameron, to Banal of America audio. Yeah, thank you, Tim, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Awesome. Well, let's start out with a little bit of your background, you know, how you got into the UFO field and that sort of thing, a little bio. Okay, um, at the time when it happened, this would be May of 1975 when I got involved. I was a student at the University of Manitoba here in Canada, was uh, working odd jobs, this sort of stuff, and spent a lot of our spare time just sort of driving around the city, you know, whatever, doing doing basically nothing. Fairly young at the time, and uh, what was happening at the time is just on the American, on the North Dakota Manitoba border, right along the U.S.-Canada border, there was a flop of sightings that was occurring, and later on we sort of put it together, there was uh, Minot, North Dakota, which is a missile base where there was quite a few sightings, uh, Loring Air Force Base in Maine, where there was uh, reported from NORAD documents, uh, UFOs inside the weapons storage areas at uh, Malmstrom in Montana and at the Michigan Air Force Base, I can't remember the name, right on the U.S. border, yeah. but there was piles of sightings going on in Minnesota, um, North Dakota, and we had them. And it wasn't until the National Enquirer came up here and strung the whole story together that I realized this was part of a, a major flap. And what happened was here we had uh, what started in February of 1975, a large flap of sightings which occurred about 40 miles southwest of the city I live in, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, a town called Carmen, Manitoba. Okay. And this object was being seen almost nightly. The, wow. It was so popular that they even gave it a name. It was called Charlie Red Star. It, <laughs> uh, when you saw it, it appeared to be almost like it was alive. It looked like a beating heart. It was pulsing, oh, wow. uh, very, very bright. You couldn't really see the shape of it because it was very intense light, moving very, very slow, very, very close to the ground. Uh, it was close enough that you could actually, in a car, 
who spend a lot of time chasing this thing that you can actually catch up on it. You can actually gain on this thing. Huh. And anyway, um, this be in May of 1975. The sightings have been going on for quite a while. And in May, there had one of the TV stations from the big city. I'm in a city of about 700,000 people. Okay. Had gone down and actually gotten a film of this thing jumping off the ground. They had this thing surrounded on the ground with a bunch of pilots, uh, cars, and uh, they brought out a, a film a, a film crew, and they managed to catch this thing as it jumped off the ground, which which was a world famous film. Gene Allen Hynek at the time said it was the best UFO film he'd ever seen, and uh, they basically knew exactly where the object was. They had ground tracings of where this thing had been sitting because they saw it on the ground, and this camera is eight miles away, so they you know could do all sorts of calculations. This thing had gone from zero to thirty-two thousand miles an hour in, in like in three frames of film. So it, it it was a story that was building momentum. More and more people were seeing it. It was in the newspaper all the time. And uh, I had known about the story. I really didn't have, I had sort of an interest in uh, paranormal, in uh, life after death, things like this. Yeah. Uh, but I really, I can't ever think before May of 1975 ever having thought about UFOs or cared about it or anything. And I said to my friends, uh, there's two of us, and, or three of us, and I said to the other two, I said, well, instead of driving around Winnipeg, why don't we go out and see what everybody's looking at? Because this thing kept being reported in the paper. We didn't go the first time. And then when this filled, Film was shot. I said, "Well, come on, let's let's go and see what everybody's looking at." Yeah. So we drove out to this town, which is, as I said, about 40 miles southwest of where I live. Small town, about 2,000 people, middle of nowhere, really nothing around there. Closest town is 11 miles away, and that town was maybe uh, 250 people. Really, very sparsely populated area. Flat as can be. Terrain is some of the flattest area in the world. <laughs> and uh, we were there for about an hour, driving around, driving into the town, drive out of the town, yeah. looking at stars, planets. I really didn't know much about astronomy. I saw something setting, which later I realized was the planet Venus setting on the horizon. It looked kind of interesting, but I figured, well, I mean, if that's what everybody's looking at, this isn't such a great deal. Yeah. And uh, I remember my friend, uh, who I'm still very close friends with, uh, said, uh, well, we're going to drive back into town one more time. And this would be about, uh, we got there about 1130 at night. This would be 1230. He said, we'll drive back into town one more time. And if we don't see anything, that'll be it. We're going home. This is, this is a waste of time. And as we returned and we're driving into the, 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 back into the town, we we're about maybe a mile out of the town. And the object appeared coming from the left to the right, very, very low. Bouncing, we called it like a bobber on a fishing line. If you have a fishing line with a with a bobber on it in the, in the water, it's sort of moving. It wasn't flying in a straight line. It was sort of bouncing up and down, moving fairly slow, uh, very intense, fairly close, maybe a mile down the road from us, right in front of the car. And uh, as I've explained numerous times, I've lectured to numerous people, and I've always said there's there's uh, different things in the world, whether you're talking religion or UFOs or whatever. There's there's believing and there's knowing. If you have not seen, if you have not experienced, you can only believe or disbelieve. But if you've seen it, you know. And from the minute I saw it, everybody in the car said the same thing. Everybody, there was no sort of discussion of, well, is that what everybody's looking at? Because we had that que yeah. question for the last hour. It was instantly everybody said, there it is. Everybody yeah. knew instantly this is what everybody was talking about. And my father was a pilot. My son's a pilot. It was the most dramatic thing I'd ever seen in my life. I'd never seen anything like it. There's no way you can say, oh, it's a plane, it's a star. It just didn't compare to anything I'd ever seen or has ever, have ever seen since. Wow. And we instantly all said, there it is. There it is. And it was like pandemonium. And I remember uh, there was a set of school buses just on the right-hand side. We were going... Um, west end of the town. So on the north side of the highway, there was a set of school buses where they parked the school buses for the town. Yep. And I remember it was very, very low and it was going in behind the school buses. 
and uh, my friend, we were trying to stop because we all want to get we want to get out of the car to get past these school buses to see this thing as it flew off into the the distance. And I remember the car was still moving and people getting out of the car while it was moving. It was that exciting wow. that people knew instantly this this was something yeah. that we had to see. So I remember I went home and I told all my friends and, the, and relatives and everything. I said, "This is the most magnificent thing you've ever seen. You got to see this. It'll just blow you away." And I was terribly excited. And I remember I managed to recruit a pile of my friends and we went out two nights later. And we were looking for the airport. There was a one of the major place where this thing was being seen was uh, what was called Friendship Field, which is a very small airfield run by Bob Deemer, who was a world world famous person here, in that he rebuilt the first Japanese Zero. He spent a lot of time. He got this industry going of taking old warplanes and rebuilding them okay. and this would be back then he had already built a Japanese zero he'd recovered it from the jungle in South America it was the first Japanese zero ever rebuilt so he was kind of a famous guy and he had this full field there and he would repair people's planes and and uh, stuff would fly out of there the local farmers and stuff and anyway we're looking for his airport because he apparently had been seeing this more than anybody he was actually taking people out on tours and this sort of stuff. So we were looking for the airport and I remember we went west of town and I really didn't know where the airport was. It's a small field so they turn off the lights at night and uh, of course we were standing right by the airport we didn't even realize it. And I had all my friends there and I remember we sat there for an hour and my friend said, ah, oh, Cameron, you, 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 you're crazy. When, when is this thing coming? And I said, oh, it's coming. Hang on, hang on. This is the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. And I remember when we started, there was 25 people there. Uh, the guy who was driving the first night was with me in a car. We'd taken three kids who were doing science fair projects, and we were standing there. And I remember there was a car with a – it was a courier car that did uh, courier deliveries. And I remember there was four people in that car. Okay. And uh, by the time an hour went by, my friends all said, ah, that's it. We're, we've had enough of this nonsense. We're going back to Winnipeg. I said, hang on, hang on. You've got to see this thing. They said, no, no, we're hungry. We're going back to Winnipeg for pizza. So all my best friends and relatives in my life just took off, and they headed back, and like I was crazy and whatever. And I remember about 15 minutes later, it was almost the same time as it appeared the first night, just a little oh, bit man. later. And I remember the kids were sitting in the field. We were standing on the road, just sort of looking west into the. There's a. It's completely flat, but there's a, a, a sort of a hill, hilly area there, yeah. just on the west side. It's the only hills for hundreds of miles. And I remember uh, we saw a flash. It was like a flash bulb. And I remember the kids were sitting in the field, and they said, "Is that? Is that it?" And I, I looked, and there was a second flash, and it was completely in a different part of the sky. And it was a, like a flash, like a flash cube yeah. on the old cameras. And uh, the, the kids were getting excited, and they were going. And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I think that's it." And, and uh, there was, there was, by then there was only uh, five of us and there was four people in this courier car beside us. We were standing there and I remember it was, uh, as it, it started to move around, it was bouncing in the field of vision, about eight inches in the field of vision, which was massive. It was just bouncing around. And later on, I would interview people there and some kids that I interviewed, very, very young kids whose parents were involved. I went and talked to them secretly when their parents weren't there. Very young kids who were like six, seven years old, yeah. all seen this thing. And they, they described this as the bouncing ping pong ball. And this is exactly what it looked like. It looked like a flash cube or a ping pong ball bouncing around in the sky and huge, huge distances between. Them. And so this thing was flashing around, and I remember it was it, it was the same sort of thing as the first night. It was like um, everybody instantly knew this was something very unusual, and it was like a football game. There was people swearing, there was yelling and screaming, and I remember the guy, one of the guys in the courier car beside me had a, had a camera with a telephoto on it, and it was when uh, the uh, motor drives first came out of for 35 millimeter cameras, and I can just remember this guy with his motor drive was going, cut, cut, 
and he was literally shooting this camera as fast as he could shoot it. Yeah. And there was no questions. There was nobody saying, uh, you know, is, is that it or is this a UFO or whatever. Everybody instantly knew. And I remember there was a girl in the car beside us. And because this thing was bouncing around, it was just a flash. She couldn't see it. And she was crying. And I remember she saying, I can't see it. I can't see it. So much, so much show me. And everybody just totally ignored her. And she was crying. <laughs> and as this thing came closer, the, the, the amount that it was bouncing decreased, decreased. And as it got closer, it was coming right at us. Uh, we were sitting there, and then it, it suddenly reappeared like it had the first night. It turned into this sort of a uh, uh, real bright red pulsing light, and it was coming right at us. Oh, and this boy. time it came fairly close, I would say. It was uh, maybe a half a mile out away from us, and it was very, very low. I'd say 500 feet off the ground, maybe 1,000 at the most. And uh, it came right at us, about half a mile away, and then it made a turn, and it started to go uh, towards the north side of town as if it was going to fly around the north side of the town. And on the back side, you could see a, a glow, a green glow on the back side of this, this intense red object that uh, people said, what was the size? I don't know, the size of a DC-3. Who knows? I mean, it's very hard at night to tell yeah. what the size was. Yeah. But it was dramatic. And I remember uh, there was people yelling and screaming. And then as it made the turn, people realized that this thing was now moving away from us. It was starting to go around this side of town. And these people started, the people in the car, and I tried to track them down later. I managed to get to the courier company, but I didn't go back for a number of months to try to get these photographs. Yeah. And I remember talking to the people at the courier company. They said, yeah, they remember the girl who was, the, who was a courier there who had been talking about this, but they couldn't remember who she was and she had quit and this sort of stuff. And I remember yeah. they, they jumped in the, their car and they said, we're going after this thing. And I remember the gravel was flying. It was a gravel road. There was gravel flying. And they took off chasing this thing. Oh, boy. Which is something that we did over the next, this flap lasted for about 18 months till the fall oh, wow. of 1976. Uh, and I remember numerous times chasing this thing with a car uh, and actually gaining ground on. I remember, uh, you might not know what mile roads are, but mile roads are, if you see the terrain, it's, it, there's every mile, there's a road. And uh, every mile north, every mile south, every mile east, every mile So it, it gives you this checkerboard pattern. Yeah. So we would know exactly um, if we were looking at something, how many miles it was over, depending how many mile roads we'd gone. And it, because the world is round every 10 miles or 12 miles, I don't know what it is, they, they actually move the road over 50 feet to, okay. to align for the, for the curvature of the earth. Yeah. And I remember one time we were zipping along there going 65, 70 miles an hour without lights on. And because the, the road goes straight, you don't have to worry about anything. And, and just enough, you have your park lights just enough so you can sort of see to stay out of the ditch. And I remember driving right off the end of this mile road, just they just moved the road over 50 feet, but we were so intense watching this object, and we're actually gaining ground on it, and suddenly we were up in the air, and uh, we ended up in the field. Luckily, there was a bunch of snow on the field, and managed oh, to push the car back out. So that's how I started, and it was sort of a, an experience where uh, I guess I saw the big one. Uh, sort of my memory sort of fades me how many times. So it was quite a few, one dozen, two dozen times. Oh, wow. And then in 1976, these small objects started to appear on the ground that we noticed about 11 miles away from Carmen, and I photographed those. I took out, uh, I'd say, about 110 people on various tours to show them these objects and how they would react to, to flashlights and to light and stuff like this. Yeah. Had some very dramatic experience. And then sort of just because the big ones weren't flying around anymore, I just sort of lost interest. People wanted to see the ones on the ground, and I would draw a little map and say, here's where you go. You go down this road, you go down this road, yeah. down this back diluted, uh, sort of secluded road, and stand there and watch for an hour or two, and you'll see this object uh, flaring up, going down, all this sort of stuff. And I sort of just sort of lost interest in it because what happened was I had, had done a manuscript, 
And I remember trying to put the manuscript around, and, and it was a fairly prominent story. There was a lot of very prominent people involved. There had been some photographs. I bought up all the best photographs that had been taken there, and I had a lot of experiences. I had had uh, so many interviews. I'd gone around interviewing people, and a lot of people, even though half the town claimed to have seen this thing, or in the high school, I, I did a lecture in the high school, and 62% of the kids in the high school claimed to have seen this object. Oh, wow. So it was a very popular type of thing, and it was a local story, and I remember going to the, the major Canadian publishers, and a lot of them did a reading of it, and you sort of got close, but nobody really wanted to take the manuscript. But I remember going to the local publisher, and the local publisher here in the big city here basically said, well, uh, you may believe in this kind of stuff, count me among the unbelievers, which was oh, my rejection letter. So I sort of got sort of discouraged that even though it was a fantastic story, I sort of came to the conclusion that UFO sightings, even though they were dramatic, even though they, they are something that really will will give you a, an example of know, knowing that something's going on rather than just believing or disbelieving it, you have to see it for yourself. But I figured UFO sightings really wasn't getting us anywhere because I had all my friends and relatives, my father was a pilot, and even my father had some you know questions about you know whether I was really seeing what I was seeing and stuff. Yeah. So I sort of figured there had to be a better way to do it. And what happened was um, one of the people who had had sightings there was a radar technician who had worked with my father at the Department of Transport in Winnipeg. And he was a radar tech, and he, he had seen a sighting, and it was nothing major. It was some so, the same sort of thing, the red object flying around. So I was getting these details from him, and he said uh, his name was uh, Ernie. And so Ernie says to me, he says, well, I'll tell you, he says, you know, if you really want to know about this UFO stuff, you should research Wilbur Smith who used to run the Canadian government UFO program. Okay. And he said, I used to work with him. And I said, he said, uh, he was he was a real crazy guy. He said, I mean, he, <laughs> he, used, he used to talk to the aliens all the time. He used to land in his backyard. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, yeah. He said, and he was serious. He was dead serious. And he was the guy that ran the Canadian government UFO program. So basically, I got the information, and I contacted his wife. And Wilbur Smith had died in 1962, and this was now 1977, 78, somewhere in that period. Okay. And so he'd been dead, but I made contact with his wife, who lived in Ottawa, Canada, and Ottawa is about 1,500 miles from me. And I said, I'm very interested in the research of your husband and what he did for the Canadian government and this sort of stuff. And she wrote me back, and she said, uh, you're welcome to come down. I said, well, I'd like to come to Ottawa. I'd like to interview you. So she said, fine. And so... Uh, she was impressed that this young 23, whatever I was, 23-year-old kid was going was interested in her husband's work and was willing to fly to Ottawa. And then she also gave me a name of a, of a fellow who I believe may still be alive, who lived in my area, who had worked with Wilbur Smith. And he was a metallurgist. He had worked on the, the metal that Wilbur Smith had handled from the, from the U.S. military. And he lived in my area, and he had never been interviewed by anybody. He was very paranoid about the situation. He believed that UFOs had destroyed his career with the Canadian government. He was a military scientist. Yeah. And she put me in contact with him and basically told this guy, his name is Art, his first name was Art. She said to Art, this young gentleman is very interested in this, and I want you to talk to this guy. So oh, he had wow. no choice. He had to talk to me. <laughs> so I went down and I interviewed him a number of times. It was a very scary type of situation. He was very, very direct. He was uh, uh, didn't me very aware that he didn't want to be talking about this, that he would answer my questions, but some questions he wouldn't answer, and his, his children weren't allowed to be in the room, the wife was not allowed to be in the room, they had to leave the room whenever we talked. So I interviewed him, and then I went to, to Ottawa, and of course I was very interested in the stories about Wilbur Smith uh, talking with the aliens and having them land in his backyard and stuff, and I remember I picked up his wife, and she said, uh, Merle was his wife's name, yep. she was fairly old at the time, she had just retired from as, as secretary to the Speaker of the Senate in the, oh, wow. uh, in the Canadian Parliament. 
Parliament. So she was a fairly prominent wo woman herself. We got, uh, you know, had her own reputation to protect. And she was very upset about the fact that the Canadian government was, um, the, the French was taking over the government, that the French was being uh, more and more a part of the government, and, and there's, there was sort of a disagreement there. So she was ready to talk. She was very upset with how her husband had been dealt with by the Canadian government. It was upset about this, this French issue in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. So she it was only a couple of days before she retired, so she was she was willing to talk, and I just happened to hit her at the right time. Yeah. And I remember picking her up, and she said, well, we're going to go to James, Jim's house, which is her oldest son, Wilbur Smith, uh, the Canadian investigator who ran the Project Magnet, which is the Canadian UFO study, had two sons, both, uh, one was a, uh, taught music at school, this is the guy we went to, and the other was an engineer who has never really talked about it, the daughter has really never, never really talked about it, but the son was in charge of, the oldest son, James, was in charge of the files, and I, I'll yeah. talk about that in a minute, but anyway, she said, we're going to go to James' house, and I said, okay, fine, I'd rented a car, and I, we jumped in the car, and she started, uh, I drove, and as I drove, she started to talk about some of the stuff that had been going on back in 1950 to 1962 when her husband died. And basically it was like a science fiction. It was unbelievable. She was talking about AFA. And AFA was the alien that, uh, that Wilbur Smith had been talking to. And she basically talked about AFA this and AFA that. And it was oh, like, wow. this was for real. I mean, they were, this was actually going on, that there was this alien and they had been in contact and this sort of stuff. And uh, so when, it, when the interview uh, went on, I, I didn't... Uh, tape it or anything like that, but I, I, I discussed all this with her. And she made a number of very revealing statements, the fact that they had made contact with, with aliens. The Canadian Prime Minister had been involved and that Wilbur Smith was dealing directly with the Canadian Prime Minister and that he had done an interim report on Project Magnet which had gone to the Prime Minister, had sat on the Prime Minister's desk for three months, and this is an interim report where he said uh, uh, basically this was for real, this was all, 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 all a real phenomena, that this is what he had established from his investigation after talking to the Americans, and that it sat on the Prime Minister's desk for three months and that the Prime Minister and Wilbur Smith had gotten together and had decided that it really, and this was I guess from 1950, three when this interim report came out and suddenly decided that this was not the proper time to release the study. So it did remain classified until uh, 1979. It remained classified for a number of years. Did, um, now let yeah. me just jump in for a second. Did Wilbur Smith's wife, um, did she say, was he upset that they decided not to release it or was that his opinion too? He, he had agreed to this. He was very upset. As she told me, he was very upset about how he'd been dealt with by the Canadian government. She stated things like, for example, he had 37 different patents. Oh, boy. That only one of the patents they'd ever gotten uh, rights to. That the Canadian government had decided that anything that he worked on, and he'd worked on a lot of, uh, he was an electronic engineer, and he was head of the uh, radio regulations for the Department of Transport. He had developed a, a bunch of radio equipment that had been used in Department of Transport planes. And these are planes that fly up into the Arctic and do government yeah. work and this sort of stuff. And she had said that what it would, would go on is he would, uh, he would get a schematic, he would draw whatever the equipment was on his own time and that the government would literally walk into the house, take the equipment and walk out and maintain that anything that he did was being done, done on government time and therefore they had had rights to it. And she said at one point they, they managed to secretly patent one of the patents and they bought a car with it, with the money that they made on it and the government is very upset. There are only one of these 37 patents. Which leads to an interesting story that Wilbur Smith, uh, near the end of his life, as according to his wife, had developed uh, an experiment which is now being done by the Finnish and by NASA. This is uh, an experiment 
uh, and a gravity control, not an anti-gravity, but an anti-gravity control experiment, where Wilbur Smith, his, uh, his concept, which now the Finnish and, and NASA are working on, is to use a magnetic uh, field, to spin a, a magnetic field at very high revolutions. And Wilbur Smith was spinning his plate in a plate with ceramic magnets glued onto this uh, brass plate, and they would spin this thing. They were using a uh, vacuum cleaner motor and a washing machine motor, and they would spin this thing at up to 17,000 or 18,000 revolutions a, sec a minute and very high revolutions, and they would weigh this thing on a, a very delicate balance and would see whether a, a spinning magnetic field would lose weight, and, and they concluded that it did. Now, the, now, as I said, the Finnish are working on it, and uh, most of Wilbur Smith's books were sold in Finland by uh, somebody there, and the NASA was working on a similar sort of experiment using a, a magnetic field and spinning at a very high uh, rate. And anyway, he had worked on this experiment and actually had gotten, according to the stories that were told to me by the metallurgist and by Wilbur Smith, had actually gotten inf uh, input from the aliens, from this AFA, uh, on how to, how, to, how to build this experiment. And um, they, they even told a story, a bizarre story that was told in Ottawa about how um, they were working on this thing, they had it in the garage, and there was a group of inside government people, one was from the, from the Navy, one was from the Air Force, this metallurgist guy was from, from the Defense Research Board where they, where they did the weapon research, he was working on uh, all sorts of uh, weapon research stuff, and they would meet sort of secretly, semi-secretly, and they would work on this experiment. And they were working on it one Saturday morning, and they would get different weird things happen. And the one was they were they were going to test this thing, moving at whatever seventeen, eighteen thousand revolutions, and they got a phone call from a blind telex operator who was one of the people who was passing messages from AFA. Yeah. And this blind telex operator, working in Ottawa, said, "I have a message from AFA." AFA said, "Shield the experiment." So according to, and I've heard this story from two different sources that this actually happened, Wilbur Smith said, AFA's told us to shoot the experiment, shut her down, and they built a, a, a brick wall around this experiment. Wow. And they plugged it in to test it, and the thing exploded. And Wilbur Smith, even in his writings, which were recovered, uh, said that they were picking ceramic magnets out of the wall, that somebody would have been seriously injured oh, yeah. if, if they hadn't built this wall. So this is the kind of stuff that was going on, uh, just bizarre stuff that yeah. had to be backed up. They had a woman in the United States that later on, when I did all the research, had been studied by the CIA, by the FBI, by the U.S. Air Force. Uh, uh, Francis Swan, Swan? Francis Swan out, yeah. out of Maine that lived down the road from Betty Hill. And uh, the stories that went on there about uh, the contacts and, and what the material that she was providing to Wilbur Smith. And then some of the indirect stuff like uh, the fact that she had been brought in uh, to talk to Betty Hill when Betty Hill was abducted by by Nightcap. The Nightcap not only did not believe it, they, they heard this is totally crazy that suddenly some woman's talking about little little aliens. The aliens were always uh, seen as uh, blonde, uh, good guys that uh, come down to help us, you know, get past uh, atomic weapons and stuff like that. Yeah. And suddenly here you have a, some woman out coming out with a story that these little uh, gray guys have stopped them on the road and abducted them and uh, stuck stuff into them. And Nightcap couldn't believe this. Uh, Keyhole couldn't believe this story. It just was not for to, to be believed. And one of Wilbur Smith's friends who was uh, a Nightcap member, Admiral Knowles, who was uh, one of the top people in Nightcap, had uh, been very good friends with uh, Francis Swan and had actually taken Francis Swan 
to Betty Hill to try to calm Betty Hill down to explain to her that this was nothing unusual. The, the difference was that um, Frances Swan was from the 50s. She was, a, was dealing with the contactees. She was dealing with uh, the human type aliens. Yeah, Alpha was a human type alien, looked uh, like a like a, a, a regular type person, and here was um, Mrs. Uh, Hill dealing with these greys. So when Betty Hill was was had or when Francis Swan was brought in, she basically said, "No, this woman's in contact with the evil ones, and I'm not going to deal with her." And it was very unusual because this is, this is going this is going 1962, whatever it was, late 61, 62, and here you have the beginning of the Greys, who now some people would say are probably uh, evil aliens. It sort of brought a whole new perspective, as if uh, ufology goes through patterns. That it starts with the blondes, then it goes to the to the Greys, the abductions, and then you have you know it it sort of moves on to different things, as if the aliens are sort of laying this out in a pattern, which yeah. is something that came out of the Francis Swan story. But anyway, the U.S. military, and everybody was looking at this Francis Swan, and, and this was one of Wilbur Smith's main contacts to AFA, this alien. Okay. And uh, Wilbur Smith uh, is, is probably most famous in the UFO community for having written the top secret memo, which was um, a memo that was written in November of 1950. And what happened was Wilbur Smith had read uh, uh, Frank Skelly's book on the crash flying saucers, and he'd also read the book, the the first book that had come out from uh, Admiral or Major Keel, and had been been very interested in the UFO thing, and had decided, as he said, uh, there seemed to be a lot of smoke here, and he had a lot of contacts with the higher-ranking American officials, and he decided that when, once in Washington he would, if there was all this smoke, he was going to look for the fire. Yeah. And he went down there. He did a number of interviews. One. Of the interviews that we know he did was with Dr. Robert Saubacher, who was a military uh, scientist down in the United States who worked on various military things. He was sort of a, he'd go from one project to another and was sort of uh, paid on a, you know, whatever he was doing, this sort of stuff. He was very interested in being on the front line of research. So he was working there and basically Wilbur Smith, they had a contact and we don't know why the Americans uh, were dealt with here why it was Sarbacher who who was interviewed by the Canadians, but the Canadians, it was the military attaché who set up this interview for Wilbur Smith with Dr. Robert Sarbacher, and we believe it might have been because Dr. Robert Sarbacher was working on the Dewline radar that it was being set up at the time in Canada to uh, check for Russian uh, missiles, okay, and yeah. bombers coming over the North Pole. So Sabacher worked on this and had some contact with the Canadians. The Canadian Embassy, all this stuff was going through the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C. And basically Sabacher told Wilbur Smith a couple of things. He said, number one, this, this story's for real. He had been invited to a, a series of um, briefings. This is what he told Stan Friedman when he was tracked down in the 1980s after we found out about this, that he'd been invited to a series of briefings that were held at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base dealing with a crash flying saucer that had crashed somewhere in the southwest. Okay. And uh, he'd been taken, he didn't have time to go, but he heard various people coming back to the Navy office in Washington, D.C., where he was working, and these people were coming back to the Navy office, and they were talking about it. And he was connected with the uh, Research and Development Board in the United States, which did all the military weapon research, uh, now sort of like a section of the Department of Defense. But then it was a very, very big uh, independent organization that worked on hydrogen bomb, worked on uh, you know proximity fuse, all these different things yeah. were under this organization, and um, this is where all this material was coming from. And a lot of these people from this research and development board had gone to Wright Patterson to this meeting. 
So Smith comes back with this material that he got from um, uh, Saarbacher, which included the fact it was it was the most highly classified secret in the United States, the UFO story. It was uh, rated higher than the hydrogen bomb. And Wilbur Smith even it, it stated something that which when people refer to this top secret memo, they always leave out. And that is the fact that he talked about mental phenomena. He said the, the Americans believe that mental phenomena is associated with this sauce, with the saucer phenomena. And they're not doing very well because they've asked us if we have anything on the subject, they're willing to uh, cooperate with us. Huh. And so Wilbur Smith went off on this tangent that said that mental phenomena associated with flying saucers is very important. And a lot of what he did. So when people would come and say, uh, I'm talking with aliens, uh, they're coming to me in, in, in my mind or whatever, to him this was very important. And he always would take a look at these people and what he would do is instead of just disregarding their story, he would take all the stories and put them together and try to find out whether they coincided with other stories. And that's how he determined in his mind who was telling the truth and wasn't telling the truth. He would cross-index all this stuff. And the other thing that he uh, was told or that he put in this top secret memo was the fact that Vannevar Bush, and this is something that Saarbacher didn't tell him. People always assume that this Dr. Saarbacher told him. He got this from somebody else. And that was the fact that Dr. Vannevar Bush, who was considered the czar of technology during the World War II in, in the United States, very brilliant engineer uh, working uh, out of Washington, had, was science advisor to President Roosevelt, and uh, Vannevar Bush was heading the, the UFO program. There's a small group of people working on UFOs, and they were working under Vannevar Bush. And we do know that through the Canadian Embassy, that uh, a paper that Wilbur Smith had written for the Canadian government, and this is a paper that dealt with um, UFO propulsion or flying saucers. Wilbur Smith always called it flying saucers, never called it UFOs. Yeah. I think he knew well enough that the U.S. Air Force had developed a term to try to get people steered away from aliens and to talk about some nebulous term that could be meant to describe anything. Yeah. So Wilbur Smith never used UFOs. He always called them flying saucers, flying discs. He knew from the word go what the things were. Yeah, they were identified to him. Yeah, later on we learned uh, a story that it was confirmed by his son when I went back to his son. And it was a story that one of his associates was indirectly telling. Uh, then the fact was that he had been shown a crash flying saucer outside of Washington, D.C. We thought it may be Langley. We're not 100% sure. We, it was just an Air Force base out of Washington, D.C. and that he'd seen the bodies. And he oh, had boy. described to his son the fact that the bodies looked uh, as described, and that would be Frank Scully's description, that they were human-like, they were smaller. He never described grays. At the time, you, people have to keep in mind that when Wilbur Smith was alive, up to 1962, there was no grays. There was yeah. no reports of grays. It didn't come until Betty and Barney Hill were abducted. Yeah. That's when it became popular in the literature. So it was always uh, ordinary type people, and Wilbur Smith said that they could fit in to uh, society, that he, would, he knew what they looked like, they looked like us, and he always described this. So this was uh, an interesting document. It was uh, the Canadian government, in the discussions I've had with uh, high-ranking people, they've always said to me that Wilbur Smith uh, misclassified the document. It shouldn't have been a top-secret document. He put top-secret on his own document and just uh, put it, it should have been, shouldn't have been top-secret. None, none of this occurred. And the, the problem with the argument that the Canadian government made or these high-ranking people that we dealt with, like Millman and McNamara and people like this, was the fact that um, a document is always classified by the person who writes it. And oh, okay. you, you don't send a top secret yeah. document to the government and let them classify it because it has to be classified from the minute it, it goes into the courier. Yeah. So he had every right to put top secret on the document. It was downgraded the month after, two months after he wrote it, it was downgraded to secret. But the Canadian government maintained the document as 
a secret document from uh, from January of 1951 all the way up to December of 19, or it was in 1967, I can't remember the month, but there was a lot of pressure being put on the Canadian government to release the UFO files, and at that point, they downgraded the thing to confidential, this document that they said uh, should, shouldn't have been top secret or shouldn't have been classified to start with. They only downgraded it to, to confidential and wrote a memo and said at no time should this document be released to the public. If somebody had a real reason to read it, it could be, uh, like inside the government, it could be released, but at no time should it be available to the public. Oh, wow. The document itself was not declassified until Stanton Friedman and a guy who actually changed his name to Mr. X out of Hamilton, Ontario, when they actually put tremendous pressure on the Canadian government to release the files. And that was in late 1978-79, and Stanton Friedman got the first copy of the declassified document. So it remained classified in Canadian government files from, this, from November of 1950 all the way up to the almost 1980, and wow. it was a document that was top secret. It was written uh, uh, by a guy who had a very high security clearance. Uh, for example, his metallurgist told me that Wilbur Smith, not only did he have a high security clearance dealing with UFOs, he, he said to me, he said, do you know what Wilbur Smith did for a living? And I said, well, he was a radio engineer. And he said, no, do you know what he actually did for a living? And I said, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, what did he do? And he said he ran Radio Ottawa. And I, he said, do you know what Radio Ottawa is? And I said, well, no, I don't. And he said, well, when the spies radio in, they have to go through something. And Wilbur Smith negotiated all the FM and the, all the AM frequency uh, channels with the United States along the border. They would determine yeah. who has this frequency, who has that frequency. And he was in charge of 50,000 radio stations, whether it be civilian or military. And he also ran all the, the radio frequencies for spy agencies. So here was a guy who had access to all sorts of stuff. They had a station where uh, Wilbur Smith built a flying saucer observatory, it was built at Shirley's Bay, and Shirley's Bay is about 10, 10 miles, it was then 10 miles outside Ottawa, now it's much closer because the city's huge, but it was 10 miles out of the city, and it was where they, the Canadians picked off all the Russian communications, and they had big radio antennas, and they tried to pick off all the, what, they, what the Russians were doing. So he was in, in charge of this very highly secret establishment. Oh, yeah. And here he had a flying saucer observatory, which the government, as much as they hate to do it, actually had to deny, had to admit that they actually allowed Wilbur Smith to have a flying saucer observatory. And this was on this property. It was on government property, and the building was provided for by the government. It was a, just a small shack, and on my website, so anybody wants to go there, can actually look. The, the photographs are there of, the, of this flying saucer observatory, which was open from... Uh, 1953 to 1954 when Project Magnet was shut down. Now the government will say the reason Project Magnet was shut down was because nothing came of it, Wilbur Smith didn't get anywhere, there was no UFOs, so they shut the program down for, you know, just to save money and it was a waste of time. What actually happened is they had the Flying Saucer Observatory and Wilbur Smith had five different types of equipment in this Flying Saucer Observatory. They would be changing, uh, changing noise, changing gravitational field, and they had all these five instruments set up. And they had this Ernie uh, Epp, who was the radar tech, and this was his job at the time. He was a very young radio engineer, and he was working in this flying saucer observatory, and part of their job was to change the tapes. They would run with these long tapes, and they would have to change the tapes, and they would have the little needles, and you would be able to determine whether something was going on. And in, on August the 8th of 1954, he described the fact that they were there and that... Um, 
this, the, the, everything went, they had a, uh, an alarm system on there. And this was, uh, I can't remember what the day of the week it was, but the alarm system went off and uh, the needles were going right off the paper and uh, they, they were all excited. They ran out of the, the building. It was overcast and uh, they couldn't see what it was, but it definitely didn't resemble anything they'd ever picked up before. It was uh, very dramatic. Yeah. And uh, Wilbur Smith came out. Of course, he was very open, which was part of the reason it was shut down. He was very honest. He was very open about what was going on. And he was immediately inundated with the, uh, the media, and he stated, he made a mistake in stating, if um, this is not uh, a mistake if there's not a malfunctioning equipment. We've just detected the first flying saucer flying over Ottawa, Canada, oh which boy. is the, the Canadian nation's capital. Didn't go over very well with the government. I they bet. were stuck in a situation where they were about to go on record as having detected a flying saucer over the nation's capital. Determined at uh, you know in a in a, uh, a building run by the government. Uh, with government employees on government property, and they just couldn't take it. And Wilbur Smith had already stated that he wasn't getting enough funding. There was problems. He had written a memo earlier and stated that he either should be released to actually find out what was going on and be given the support, or the project should be shut down. So they already had this memo from Smith, and at that point, they couldn't take the publicity. And basically what they did was to shut the program down, and they gave Wilbur Smith an agreement that he could, in exchange, use the government equipment as long as he did, he no longer said that he was working for the government, he could say he was doing it on a private time, and he was able to use this equipment and do whatever he wanted. So they ended up in a situation where they were able to sidestep the issue, and so if you see the Canadian government statements, they always say he did it in his spare time uh, with equipment that was loaned to him by the Canadian government. And it's true, but it's only true after August the 10th, 1954, when they shut the program. Before then, they had two full-time uh, engineers working on it. We have correspondence from the Canadian Embassy where Wilbur Smith said it is classified secret until we know further. It's an official government program. And in some of his correspondence, he did say quite clearly, this is the official government flying saucer program. It was shut down, and I was in charge of the program. So they can't say he was working for anybody. He was basically, according to his wife, he was working for the Prime Minister of Canada above everybody else, and it was shut down and basically uh, taken out of the loop, but did still have a lot of his major contacts in the United States and was able, at the end of his life, he was very disillusioned. For example, they wanted the... the the um, schematic for the uh, gravity control program, or the, the the experiment that he was running, and he went to a Dr. Rose, according to his wife, and we know who this Rose was. He was a National Research Council, and Rose had said to him, "Well, uh, you take it, you draw it all out, and we'll we'll take a look at it, and we'll see, we'll check your measurements and stuff like that." Yeah. Wilbur said, "No, you you come to my, you can come to my house and you can look at it, but I'm not I'm not going to write it down. I'm not going to." because you're just going to come into my house and take the equipment. And Rose said, well, no, then we can't really do anything with, with this. And his wife said he came home after that meeting with uh, Dr. Rose at NRC, he was a physicist, and said uh, he came home and he took the experiment apart, and he said the world is not ready for this. All they would do is build bigger and better bombs with it. And she said he never said another thing. He lived another year, two years. He never said another thing about the experiment and, and it, until he died. And what he did at the when he was close to death, he was dying of cancer of the lower bowel, 
he actually started to talk. This is when his son asked him about the bodies and about the craft, and his, he figured there was nothing he could do about him. He was no longer uh, going to be affected by the, National, uh, the, the Secrecy Act. Yeah. He told his son this, this story that he had actually seen the bodies and seen the craft, and um, he informed his wife that uh, when he died, the government would be coming looking for his files and that she should make an effort to hide the files and that it didn't matter who came to look for the files, that she should not give the files over, that people would be coming looking for the files. So they made a, an effort and what they did was they hid the files with the son and I didn't know this until even I was at the son's house, I didn't even actually know this until years later where they had hidden the files, but the son, Gene Smith, had hidden the files. She said, sure enough, the minute Wilbur Smith died in, in late 1962, she said, the American government came, people representing the American government, people representing the Canadian government came, and people representing the Russian government came. Oh, wow. And they, and they all asked for his files, and they wanted them for research purposes. And she had told all of them the same story. No, I destroyed, I destroyed the files. We don't have the files anymore. And she said at that point, the break-in started at the house. She said it was oh, very evident that somebody was breaking into the house. The screen door would be cut, they'd be into the, into the house, but nothing would be touched in the house. And she said this occurred on a number of different occasions. Oh, and boy. what happened was the files went to the sun, and then later on they went to a guy by the name of Arthur Bray, who was uh, a guy who had the files and who was a Navy guy, had a security clearance, worked, had worked with the Canadian Navy, and he held the files for a number of years until I can't remember what year he handed them over, but he, he, he had gotten on in life, had retired, and basically had written a couple of books, talked a little bit about Wilbur Smith, what was in the documents and stuff, what he had, and I would write him and I'd say, uh, what did he talk about on this subject? And he would send me a document or two of, of what he had talked about. And whenever it was, was say 19, let's just say 1990, yeah. he decided that he would hand over the files, and he handed them over to the University of Ottawa, which is a French university in the nation's capital, and they archived all the documents. And I remember going there to look for these documents to finally see the Smith files. Yeah. They were all intact. The Wilbur Smith had made sure that he would recover, that they, they would survive his death, to actually tell the story of what actually happened. And I remember going there and not much support from the archivist. They basically said, and here I come 1,500 miles to, oh, to see these. And they said, well, you can't photograph everything. You can't photocopy everything in the file. And I said, why? And she said, well, that's just the rule we have. And I said, fine, okay, give me the file. And I went to the next room and photocopied everything, and I brought it back. And I gave me the next file, and I went back in and photocopied everything. And I basically stood there for hours, and I photocopied everything I could get out of those files. Okay. And I took them home. And then later on, there was, they actually made an agreement with another researcher who's just working on the program right now uh, to photocopy all of the material and put it on a, on a disk. And I remember him saying to me, uh, there was a couple of files that he had that I didn't have, whatever. And he said, well, you know, there's a restriction. You can't release this stuff. And I said, well, you tell the University of Ottawa, I've got all the files, and I'm putting them on a disk, and I'm going to release them to whoever wants to see them. And if they want to, have got any problem with that, they can come and sue me or do whatever they want to do. <laughs> you tell them I've got the files. And nothing ever occurred out of it because I actually went to James Smith and I said, James, what's going on? I mean, these files, your your father made sure that they were hidden and that they were they would be received by UFO researchers. And your father knows I'm probably the main researcher who's worked on his files. And he said, I can't believe that they're doing this. This wasn't the agreement. Uh, they have no right to do this kind of stuff. And uh, I don't know what happened, but they're still playing this little game that you're not allowed to uh, photocopy everything in there. But th these are thousands and thousands of pages of stuff and basically it went through all the material and basically you have very interesting stuff like Wilbur Smith uh, 
corresponding with some of the key people in ufology in the 1950s, Adamski, uh, all the major contactees uh, of, the, of the early 1950s, Kehoe, all these different people, oh, wow, and basically great. talking about what he's, what he's discovering and confirming a lot of stuff, the fact that the Americans had a crash-flying saucer. This is in writing. Wilbur Smith signed a letter that, that, that they had tons of hardware. And basically what I did is I took all Wilbur Smith's material, I put on a disc all the uh, interviews I did, all the, uh, the articles that he'd written. Uh, he used to have a newsletter that was uh, uh, with a flying saucer group that he ran in Ottawa. I put all that stuff, but everything I possibly could on a, on a disc so that you, you get in a situation in ufology a lot of times where people have good material and they keep it hidden thinking they're going to make a million bucks with it. Yeah. And I basically put it all on one disc and said, anybody wants the material, it's on the disc and you can go and uh, look at the material. It may be a little... Uh, uh, time-consuming because I have, you know, it's not filed exactly right. You have to sort of go through the same as I did, go through a thousand letters to find what you're looking for. But if you look through it, you'll run across a lot of very interesting stuff. And that was the, the Wilbur Smith story. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wow. So, so that's how it started. And it moved on to the story of, as another whole story of Dr. Eric Walker, who was the president at Penn State University, and that Wilbur Smith led us. There was a, a very definite trail that confirmed to us that the material we were getting was for real because it actually led the people you could actually track down, and those people led to other people. Yeah. And then when you assumed that those, the, we were told those people knew what was going on, we got to, for example, Dr. Eric Walker, who was pre former president of Penn State University for, for 17 years, and we were told this guy was there with the word go. This guy was one of the main people who helped create the secrecy established around this. He knew all the top people, all the military people. He had 14, 15 year honorary doctor degrees. He dealt with presidents. And we went through his thing, and his thing led to the presidents. And that's where I've spent probably the last five or six years working on the presidents and trying to figure out what does the president know and uh, is the real story there. Okay, if you can find out what the president knows, he should know everything. And that will be the true story, not the disinformation that they put out. This will be the true story of what is actually going on. Okay, wow, all right. Covered a lot of ground there, thanks. Yeah. Wow. That's, that sounds like a lot of fascinating avenues for research, especially that, the Wilbur Smith stuff. Um, yeah. I, I hadn't heard too much about him yet, so I'll definitely yeah. be checking that out. Now, you, you got into uh, ufology in the 70s in Canada, and obviously you follow what's going on here in America because we're so close nationwide. Yeah. Um, well, how would you say the, the ufology, I don't want to say scene, but the ufology field in, in Canada is compared to America? Is there, yeah. is there less, less going on up there? Uh, a lot less. Yeah. You don't. What, what happens in Canada is you don't have the crash flying saucer stories. You don't have the conspiracy stories. You don't have the government stories. You basically have people working on sightings. And there are some very uh, prominent people, Chris Rakowski, who is at the University of Manitoba, where I am. And um, he, he, they, they work on a lot of sightings. They file sightings and stuff. And I really don't have much to do with that because, as I said, it, Right from the word go, I sort of established that sightings really wasn't getting us very far. I yeah. I was always interested in sort of proving to my friends and neighbors that this thing was for real. And I figured, well, if I could find out what the government knew, I could get a document and actually prove them. Look, they, you know, shove it in their face and say, here it is. Here's the truth. Yeah. So I, I sort of moved in a different direction. But there are a lot of uh, people all across Canada who file these sightings. They're very uh, meticulous about this. They're all put together. They're on databases. And... Um, but you don't have the crash saucer stuff. You don't even have the government stuff. I would always said that 
in Canada, if you were to say, if you were to say to me, well, who in the government runs the thing, I would have no idea. I have absolutely no idea what department it would be in. And in fact, Chris Rakowski, who's here at the University of Manitoba, had is basically runs when the when the government gets a, a sighting, they basically send it to him. Uh, like oh, it boy. really does appear that the Canadian government really couldn't care less about this, that they really don't know. And you get stories like, uh, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with Canadian politics, but there was just a recently a disclosure conference that occurred at the University of Toronto. This is with um, Hellyer, right? With Paul Hellyer. Okay. Paul Hellyer. I'd known Paul Hellyer, and I'd known Paul Hellyer's story because Paul Hellyer had told the Wilbur Smith story. He had told a story, and he's famous as being the Secretary of Defense for four years under Prime Minister Lester Pearson. Lester Pearson was a guy who won the Nobel Prize, uh, Nobel Peace Prize. Okay. He was like his Prime Minister of Canada in the mid 1960s, and he was also very interested in UFOs. He'd asked for a UFO briefing. We know this from from uh, documents. And Paul Hellyer, as Defense Minister, has was the guy who had prepared the the uh, UFO briefing. And Hellyer was pretty honest about what was going on. He's very open. He says this thing's for real. He believe, he read the Corso book. He believes he, this is for real. He was told by a general in the United States it's for real. But when it came right down to it, he said he, when he was the defense minister, he got UFO sightings, but he basically ignored them. And it sort of indicated that there really was, and Secretary of Defense is one of the guys who, if, if there was a conspiracy, if there was a cover-up, this is one of the guys that would be involved. And he basically, and I, I believe him, that he really didn't have much to do. And it was almost like um, either nothing's going on or they contracted everything to the Americans. They basically yeah. just, uh, you have uh, people in the field who uh, are able to alert uh, military to what's going on and the Americans come in. And there was a story told about, that seemed to sort of give you an example about this. And this was, the same radar technician that told me about this, about a, a U-2 in 1959, and we've now confirmed the story. We've got the photographs and stuff. There, there was a U-2 coming over the North Pole, coming from Russia, and it was going to crash. It was coming down. They knew it was a U-2 based on its flight pattern. And that um, my father's office, there was the uh, accident investigator went out and went and told my father the story. He went out, and this is way up north, uh, uh, sort of in the middle of nowhere, on the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border, and he had arrived there, and the Americans had beat him to the site. The Americans were there. They had a bunch of military, oh, uh, Marine-type people, and the Canadian accident investigator went and said, um, this Canadian invest uh, I'm coming through. I'm the accident investigator, and this uh, black Marine had stuck uh, uh, a rifle in his stomach and said, you better turn around and walk away. And he okay. says, no, I'm an accident investigator. This is Canadian uh, sovereign territory. You have no right to be here. I'm, I'm the accident investigator. I'm going to investigate. And he said, sorry, sir. I'd advise you to turn around and walk away. And the guy very realized he was going to get shot. So he turned around went back to Winnipeg. was very furious. And he worked for the government. He made a phone call to Ottawa, to the nation's capital, to the Department of Transport, and said, these goddamn Americans are here. They think they own everything. Uh, they won't let us on the site. This 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 uh, plane has crashed. We have the right to go in there. And they said, well, hang on. We'll phone you back. They phoned him back an hour later and said, I think you better let the Americans just do what they want to do. And that was the end of the story. And I think that may be what happens in ufology, is that basically the Americans come in, they have a lot of ways of being alerted when something crashes or something happens, yeah. and they have their own special forces who have been given permission indirectly by somebody high up in the military to come in and recover. They can say it's a, it's a U-2, they can say it's an SR-71, make up whatever story they want, and they have access to go in there and recover the thing. But I, I really can't see any indication that anybody in the Canadian government knows what's going on.
Although now I'm starting to wonder about the American government because some of the latest material I have researched uh, and we're working on this uh, with the Clinton administration that Bill Clinton and probably your listeners don't know, I had done an extensive amount of research on the Clinton administration to try to figure out what presidents know and uh, there was a number of people inside the Clinton administration who were very interested in UFOs. There was a lot of people on the outside who were making overtures to the to the uh, the Clinton administration, like yeah, yeah. Lawrence Rockefeller, yeah. one was Stephen Greer, there was a whole pile of people and what I basically did and if people had questions about what Greer was saying or what these people, everybody's veracity and what people were saying, I basically just took everybody's story and assumed this is all for real and basically got names. Who were they talking to inside the Clinton administration? Yeah. Uh, this sort of stuff. Because the Clinton administration files are now going to be released in January of this coming year, January the 20th. I have approximately 100 of Freedom Information Act requests ready to go. Nice. It will be filed that night at midnight at the library. I've already talked to the library. I've been to the library. And the files, the president gets five years to work on his own files for memoirs and stuff. Then the files become public. And the way they open presidential files now is first come, first serve. If you happen to have the first hundred questions and their UFO questions, that's what they're going to do. They're, they're working on economy type stuff. That's what they've been given the mission. But uh, starting January 20th, first come, first serve. So I'm going to be first in line and I'm going to have my things in there. And I know all the names of the Clinton people. I know who was involved. I know the requests they were given. And I know the Clinton administration was extremely interested and that they were shut off and what has happened in the last month is that Bill Clinton made a speech which got no coverage I mean it's like ufology sometimes where our own worst enemies a major story happens and nobody knows about it because people are basically it's a hobby there's real no coordination in the UFO community people don't really work together and here you had Bill Clinton making a speech in Hong Kong, and this would be about a month ago, makes a speech in Hong Kong where he basically stands up and says, I went after the flying saucer thing. I went after the Roswell story. Oh, wow. I, I tried to figure this thing out, and I was I, I was turned away. And, and then he made a stunning statement which says, I am probably not the first president who's been kept in the dark. Oh, my and, God. And so here you have a situation where the president of the United States, former president, stands up and says, I tried to get the UFO story, and I was denied access, which is an unbelievable statement, because if this is true, and, and there's no reason it confirms everything that I, in years of research with the Clinton people, and all the stories I heard about the Clinton was that they tried to get the story, and they had been denied access. Yeah. If this is true, the President of the United States does not run the country. It's a dramatic, dramatic story that Clinton would actually even confirm it and say, I'm probably not the first President who's kept in the dark, as if you can do all the voting down in the United States you want, and do whatever you want to do, and you're wasting your time because the president doesn't run the country. There's somebody running the country rather than the president. And this is a story that I thought was dramatic, and I figured this would, you know, explode. And basically, it didn't go anywhere. It was published by one Asian newspaper. I talked to the reporter who filed it, and then she said I wanted the actual, I wanted to actually have the words on tape. And she said I destroyed the tape when I transcribed it, and I have been unable to get the Clinton people. I've still not really gotten any uh, verbal, the actual transcript, or I've got the transcript, but I haven't got the actual uh, audio of the incident or the video. But here you have a situation where only one newspaper picked it up, nobody else picked it up. In the UFO community, it ran on UFO updates, and there was no comment on it. It was as if this thing didn't happen. And I'm thinking this is probably the most dramatic UFO in yeah, that's amazing. years. And nobody picked up on it, and people couldn't care less. They're talking about sightings. They're talking about you know who does what to who and uh, who's talking. And it's just stupid stuff we argue about. And yeah. it's significant. So I, now I'm starting to think, like I wrote an article that talked about the 64 reasons why the government's keeping it 
secret. And now this moves up very high on the list that maybe the number one reason the government is keeping a secret is the government has no idea what's going on. That you and I know more than the government knows. That there may be some, some uh, cabal somewhere deep inside the government who uh, has taken over this thing. But basically, if it comes down to it, you take a look at uh, a number of situations. When I start looking at it, it starts making more sense that you have situations where, uh, for example, Hellyer uh, uh, says as, as defense minister he didn't know what was going on. You have all the Clinton people saying they tried to get the answer. James Woolsey, head of the CIA, tells Stephen Greer, how can I get – he wanted – Stephen Greer wanted him to release the material. And, and according to Greer, and I believe this story is true, Woolsey said to him, how can I – how can I – Give, give access to something I don't have access to. Here you have the head of uh, the 13th intelligence agency, the chief intelligence officer in the United States says he doesn't have access to it. So you have this, this situation where either nothing's going on and we're all deluded as to what's going on here, or somebody outside the government, there's a government inside the government, that's what Clinton had said yeah. at one point, there's a government inside the government that supposedly told uh, Sarah McClendon, a famous White House reporter, he said to Sarah McClendon when she said to him, come on, why did you do what Stephen Greer, why did you get to the bottom of this UFO thing and, and get something. And he said, Sarah, there's a government inside the government and I don't control it. Dramatic, dramatic statement. Now, then we couldn't confirm it because we could never really get Sarah McClendon to actually say on the record, uh, uh, say on audio that she'd been told this by Clinton. But now we have Clinton actually saying it in person in, in Hong Kong yeah. a month ago, confirming the story that there's a government inside the government and the President of the United States does not control it. So, at, at what point do you think the UFO secret uh, got out of the hands of the president? Well, the rumored story, when I look at that, the president's, it, the story, rumored story always was that Nixon sold it to the uh, the industrial, military industrial complex. That they, they shut down Project Blue Book in 1969 when Nixon was in there and they um, made sort of a deal that they would hand it over, the research would move over to the you know, military industrial complex and the technology and stuff, and that was the best place to put it. That was always the rumored story. Seems to sort of uh, be true, and there was the, there was a story that I've done, I probably more research than anybody, and that's the story of the Hull in the Air Force Base film. And okay. it happened under Richard Nixon, and it was sort of the fact that not only did they then take over control of the technology over to companies like uh, Boeing or uh, um, SAIC or places like this, um, but they start to build a story, and this is something that ufology, I think, has missed the boat on this, and I've lectured on it a number of times, and that is the fact that the government has released stuff. We say there's a big cover-up going on, that there's um, they're trying to keep it secret. It's not true. They are releasing the story, but they're releasing it on their schedule and based upon what they want you to know. For example, the, the, the prime example is a number of examples of, for example, close encounters of the third kind being an actual incident. That there's a rumored story was that Steven Spielberg had been leaked the story about the, the close encounters of the third kind, and he, through his movie, released this indirectly to the to the to the public. Yeah. The story that we know for a fact, it, it absolutely, was leaked by the government, and that is the story of. Robert Emenegger, who's a good friend of mine, I've dealt with him numerous times, I've interviewed him, I have every t almost every audio he's ever done, I've heard his story a hundred times, he tells the same story, it's a true story. He was approached by a colleague of his, uh, Alan Sandler, who was a, a sort of 
did uh, military research documentaries for the U.S. government, and uh, Sandler had come up and said uh, the government wants us to do some some work on uh, advanced uh, military uh, technology, and they were doing uh, laser, they were doing uh, uh, um, some sort of uh, uh, holography and stuff, all the, late, the sort of the leading edge defense stuff. Yeah. And they, they were asked to do these documentaries for the government. They were taken to Norton Air Force Base in California where all the audio and the video for the military is, is stored. And then they were taken into a secure room where the CIA used a secure room which is soundproof. And then they were told in this secure room that they also wanted to do a, a documentary on UFOs. And this is a story that's always been rumored that Walt Disney was approached and made this offer in 1955 to do a UFO documentary to acclimatize the people to leak the story to, yeah. to the people. And Robert Emmeniger tells the story numerous times that they were in this room and they were given this thing and Robert Emmeniger was a total skeptic. He thought this is total nonsense. His wife was very interested in it and read the, the National Enquirer and read all this stuff. He thought it was all gobbledygook. Had no interest in this at all but figured, well, okay, if the military wants to do this, we'll do a documentary. And said categorically, his told me numerous times, there's no sense or buts about this, this was a green light. He was given access to anybody he wanted, and they all talked. There was none of this double talk, yeah. uh, Blue yeah. Book, we didn't find anything. Basically, he was uh, given access to all the directors of Blue Book. They basically talked to him. He, he interviewed Art Lundahl, who was uh, a very famous uh, guy at the CIA who ran the the National Photographic Interpretation Center, where all the U2, all the SR-71 photographs were were analyzed. He was the guy that did the analysis in charge. He was, didn't do the analysis; he was in charge of the analysis on all the uh, photographs that were done for blue for the uh, for the Robertson panel report in the okay, yeah. in the early 1950s. He was in charge of that photography. He's a photographic expert. He was also very, very interested in UFOs. He's considered one of the most important subjects in the world. He he was given access to, or Ammoniger was given access, and and it was at that point that Art Lundahl told the story of of, of uh, uh, Francis Swan. That's where the story first leaked by Francis Swan. It was Art Lundahl talking to Robert Ammoniger, this film producer, and telling the story about how the Navy intelligence had found this woman and how they had. The, the Navy intelligence guy had learned how to talk to this alpha alien and that they had the, the Navy intelligence guy had been brought to the CIA and had been brought to the National Photographic Interpretation Center where all this very high security, top secret place in a, the dump of Washington, D.C. They had it hidden there. Nobody knew what they, what they were doing in this building. And they had gone there and that in front of Art Lundahl and CIA people that uh, they had made contact with AFA and that uh, Art Lundahl had asked for AFA to fly by the window. We want a proof. And that at that moment, this flying saucer flew by the window and sat, hovered over the, the nation's capital, over oh, the Capitol wow. building, and that basically told the story and confirmed to, to Emmeniger. The story's true. It was a CIA document that had been floated around. It was released uh, in Emmeniger's, um, in, in his book that he wrote, and it was also referred to in the documentary. It's a document we now have. We just don't have the heading, the CIA heading. But Art Lundahl had agreed, yes, he had confirmed, yes, I wrote the document. The story's true. This thing flew by the window. We saw it. And the story of Francis Swan started to unravel. We would never have known the story of Francis Swan if it hadn't been for that. So the government did actually leak all this material. Ammoniger talks about a film. Uh, which is, was taken at Vandenberg Air Force Base, that they were given. It was a top-secret film, had Quintanella's name, one of the former directors of Blue Book, had his name on the, on the canister, 
and the fact that they had uh, this thing had been launched and the missile was there and these UFOs flew along the missile and uh, they had uh, the film. They, they, they were going to put it in. They actually had the Holloman Air Force Base film. The Holloman Air Force Base film was a story that they had been told that in, uh, he was told in May of 1971, um, there's also a disinformation story that happened in April of 1964. But anyway, whenever it happened, this is a story that at Norton Air Force Base, and this is a story of close encounters of the third kind. This is a story that the Americans knew a flying saucer was going to land. They had made communication with a flying saucer, and it was all arranged. And according to what Linda Howe was told by Robert Emmenager, they were filming from five different locations. They were filming from helicopters and filming from the ground. It happened at 6 o'clock in the morning. Three UFOs came into Holloman Air Force Base. Everybody knew they were coming. Two of the two of the UFOs sort of moved away. The third uh, hobble, uh, sort of uh, came down. It was moving from side to side like it was in trouble. Landed on the tarmac at Holloman Air Force Base. High-ranking officials at Holloman Air Force Base. And this, all this stuff is being filmed from five different angles. Uh, high-ranking officials come. The door opens. These aliens get out of the craft. They meet with the high-ranking officials. They walk down the tarmac onto a, a street and into a building. And Robert Emmerich told a story that uh, at first he was denied access to Holloman Air Force Base and he was given a contact and he names the guy in the Pentagon and uh, the, pen the guy said, okay, give me a couple minutes and I'll uh, try it again. So he phones Holloman Air Force Base and uh, the first time they said, are you crazy? You think you're coming in here? You're absolutely insane. He phoned back the second time and they said, yeah, come on down. And, and he was at, he, they showed him the building. He walked around. He filmed all this sort of stuff. He basically confirmed with people that this story had actually occurred, that he talked to the people who were involved in the filming, stuff like this. And a lot of this was confirmed. He was dealing mostly with uh, Bill Coleman, who was uh, a spokesman for Blue Book in the 1960s, who was a very famous UFO-type guy. And he tells a story about um, going into the Pentagon. He and Alan Sandler were brought to the Pentagon to review the, the script. This is a script that was being written by the U.S. military, by the Pentagon. And the Pentagon had to agree to what was in the script. And he said, we went there. And we walked into the, he told, told the story, he goes in there, they didn't have to sign in at the Pentagon, they walked right in the door, they didn't have to give their names, whatever, they walked in. Then they were met by Bill Coleman, they walked down the E-ring of, uh, of the Pentagon, which is the top wing where, they, where they, all the generals and all the high-ranking people are on the E-wing, yeah. the, the, the ring, the E-ring. So they walk down there, they go into Coleman's office, and uh, they, for first they're put into a room and some guy says to them, you know, we're upset about you guys doing UFO documentaries, uh, people, people shouldn't know about this stuff, it jams up our intelligence channels, and uh, then Sandler, the, the Emmenegger's associate working on the thing, said, what are you talking about, we were involved, we were invited here by, by Hatch, and then Coleman, and they name all the people that, were, that have invited them there, and he said, oh yeah, okay, just a warning. Then they go with Coleman. Coleman tells, gives him a warning. He says, you know, if you dis discover something that's classified information, you have to keep it out of the documentary. And uh, so they're giving all these warnings. And then they said they walked into Coleman's office, and, and they said suddenly everything changed. Coleman started talking as if this were real. Oh, we're going to give you this film. We want this and that. And uh, talking as if this was for real. And they said they actually had the film. They, um, they were talking about the film. And Emmenegger is going like, this is absolutely insane. He said, I was standing, sitting there. 
and it was like negotiating out of the piece of film, and they were talking about aliens landing and, and coming out of the ship and talking to high-ranking officials, and he said, I sat there and I wondered, when is someone going to stand up and say, what the hell's going on? This is all bullshit. This yeah, is garbage. Yeah. And he said, nobody ever stood up. He said he couldn't believe it. It was like everybody was going along, and they were talking about this was like matter of fact. This happened every day in the U.S. military, and they were given the film. Uh, Emmenegger said he didn't see it. He only saw uh, drawings of the film. Uh, the uh, guy at Norton Air Force Base who was uh, Shardle, who was actually on audio and on video describing this whole thing, that he was in charge of giving out the films yeah. at, at Norton. And he describes what happened on the film. He saw the film. And then they, at the last minute, what happens, and this is how the government releases the story, at the last minute, they, they, the documentary's all ready to go. They've got all this sort of stuff. And all they have to do is insert this piece of film with the alien landing, and the, the UFO cover-up is broken. So they're all ready to go, and at the last minute, Coleman phones them and says, we, we're going to pull the film. Watergate's occurred. We, it's not the right time to release it. We have to pull the film. And Emmenegger says there was a guy came from the military, or from the, from the Pentagon, drove to California. He had a little tiny Honda. He and his wife piled these canisters of film into the backseat of the car, and they drove back to the Pentagon with this film. Now, this is a story. This is what they do. Is they give you the story. And they give you indirectly to distort the dates and stuff like this. They give you the story of what happened, and then they they pull the actual hardware. You don't have any bodies. You don't have any documents to prove it. You don't have any any video or audio. And you can tell the stories all you want. That's what they want. They want us to tell the stories. They want us to tell what's going on because we have nothing to prove it. So they 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 end up telling the story. Uh, through Francis Swan, they tell the story that in 1959, the U.S. military did establish contact with an alien and that uh, they did have contact in Washington and this thing flew by the window. Then they tell the story in May of 1971, the aliens actually landed at Hall Air Force Base and somehow indirectly they got that story to Steven Spielberg and Steven Spielberg in 1977 releases a story on film about how it's exactly the same story. So is this the, is this the, uh, this is like the concept of uh, covert disclosure that you discuss on your website, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think this is something that they spent a lot of time doing and I don't think for example, that a lot, a lot of people figure that the, the, most of researchers who get involved in this sort of are written off as the fact they're making that up and they're, they're crazy. But one of the people that I knew very well was Len Stringfield. Len Stringfield was one of the most respected ufologists that ever lived. And I knew Len Stringfield that I would talk to him uh, on phone, letters, and stuff like this. And yeah. Len Stringfield would make up a story. Len Stringfield tells a story that he was contacted and he made the first speech. I remember at Dayton, Ohio, he made the first speech about crash flying saucers and about dead alien bodies. Before then, it was not in UFO literature. It had been sort of discarded with Frank Scully as being a story that, that had been made up, and it was a bunch of uh, con men made up the story. And suddenly in 1977, and here's again what happens, is he's contacted by some, some, of, the, some of the figures, like two to 300 people, telling them about crash flying saucers. This is a story, and, and always in the end, he could never release the names of the people, but I've never been contacted by anybody who said they were involved, well, no, one, hang on, one who said that they were involved in a crash line, saw that they saw the bodies and stuff like that. But here's some guy who's contacted by 200 different witnesses. Oh, it, wow. would, it would appear to me, over a number of years, it would appear to me that they're funneling this material into him, and they're trying to control how the story comes out. They want people to know that there was a crash flying saucer. Same story about the live alien. I mean, Amanegger tells a story, and I've spent a lot of time collecting the stories of the live alien. There was a lot of people. Um, for example, Amanegger was offered it. Uh, Bill Moore was offered it. Um, Richard Doty said he was involved in it. Um, uh, Whitley Strieber said he was offered the story. Linda Moulton Howe. Linda Moulton Howe. The story about the live alien. Yeah. 
Linda Moulton's story about the fact that she was offered the um, the uh, keeper, and we actually now know who the who the guy was, what his name, when he died, and this sort of stuff. That she was offered an interview when he was dying of of cancer in Texas in 1989, I believe it was. And uh, here's the story, and they leaked this story, but you got nothing to prove that the government actually had a live alien. They go on 1988, another classic story of how they uh, they allowed the stuff is the 1988 documentary UFOs Live in Washington, which was run by the Falcon, and they leaked a bunch of stuff into that documentary. And one of the main things was the live alien. Here's a story of close of of ET the extraterrestrial. Again, you have the story, the basic exact story of the live alien, and and what they want people to believe is that there's been number one a contact in '59 and '71 a landing, and they have a live alien. They had one at the beginning that the aliens give them certain amount of material, and they leak this kind of stuff. But they've got everybody in confusion. They're leaking different stories to different people. Yeah. They tell everybody to keep the, the the name secret, so people are bumping into each other, figuring that the other guy's lying because they're using the wrong date. Yeah. And, yeah. And the material gets out, but the cover-up remains intact. So they, they have, on, on one hand, kept a secret because they want the military technology, they want to develop this sort of stuff, they want to take on the aliens or whatever stupid ideas they've got. <laughs> and on the other hand, they are still releasing the story. They don't want people back in a 1947 mentality of not knowing anything. They want to leak the story so that if it does break, if something leaks and they can't control it, the people are somewhat acclimatized, it's not going to be as big a shock because one of the big things, the 64 reasons, is that it's going to change the world as we know it once it is finally acknowledged by the general media or by the population that there is an alien presence here. It'll change everything. You know, Stephen Greer talks about the crash of the stock market. There's a lot of things, a lot of uncontrollable things that will yeah. occur. So. Now, what direction do you think they're going in this covert disclosure, like in the last 10, 15 years, because you said 88, but like since then, what's, what direction do you think it's going? I saw on your website, there's a lot of, it seems like there's a lot of documents coming out now. Yeah, I, I think what they're what they're doing because I think ufology is getting more into the conspiratorial and the documents and the underground bases and stuff is they are basically flooding the UFO information. They're flooding the documents uh, with bizarre stories and a lot of bizarre stuff, uh, trying to really muddy the waters. And, and it may indicate that some of the the truth has come out, like um, the the Bob Lazar thing, which I think was a government setup. It was it was. Um, Somebody picking up a guy who had a bad background, allowing him to see a few things, and then allowing him out into the public, and knowing that the UFO community would pick up the fact he had a background. So the idea that something was going on at Air 51 was released, but it sort of got people really. Ufologists aren't stupid. There's a lot of people who've got a lot of contacts, and they've 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 increased the the intensity of the documents that have been released. For example, if you take a look at the the majestic documents that uh, Bob and Ryan Wood have released, th th this is not a guy, this is not some uh, rogue intelligence officer who's decided yeah, he wants to throw somebody off. This is a major effort. They're talking over 3,000 pages of documents. And I, I've sat with Ryan Wood a number of times and I've looked at, um, even though I, I believe a lot of this stuff is, is uh, fabrications of real documents, they've changed stuff in the documents. Uh, I sit with Ryan and he would show me the, uh, he's a very smart guy, they've done a lot of work on, on what the um, the codes mean on these documents. Yeah. And he would show me things that there's no doubt about the fact that the codes that are used on the bottom of these things that mean, 
not even just top secret, different things that show what department it comes from, and uh, they go back and check uh, initials and, and be able to actually track the guy that signed the document, stuff like this, that uh, this, is, this is an agency. This is not a person. This is an agency putting this stuff out. And 3,000 pages of material is an awful lot of material, and they've just flooded the, the UFO community with this stuff. And even though people will say the majestic documents are, are a bunch of garbage, still the concepts that are in those documents, you can see they're gradually floating out into the UFO committee. The thing about Marilyn Monroe being assassinated, about Kennedy. Now, I've done research, and uh, the History Channel just did a documentary that was based upon my research on the presidents. And, and, and I had worked, they, they had sent one researcher down to the Kennedy Library, where I had never been. They went down, they brought the stuff back, and there was nothing there which confirmed my story of the fact that Kennedy really wasn't involved at all. Kennedy wasn't interested in space. Kennedy really didn't have much interest in this whole phenomenon at all. And yet you have a, you know, these stories that uh, Kennedy tried to release the UFO information. That's why he was assassinated. That's why uh, Marilyn Monroe was assassinated. So these type of documents are coming out to sort of use a glamorous president and really distort the, the whole idea of, of uh, the conspiracy to get the conspiracy people even more uh, wound up and off track. And they're really trying to keep us, and I think they really have the, the situation where if a document is released, I don't think anybody believe anything, because there's so much yeah. controversy around it right now. Yeah. And I've always said myself that I, I could hardly wait for the time when someone would leak me a phony document. <laughs> and uh, I've, I've never had, a, had the offer. I did have the one with the Douglas documents, which um, I don't know if you're familiar with. These are documents that I was contacted uh, by somebody who was just using a first name, Lewis. And he said, um, he sent me, um, uh, he said, and I can't remember how it happened, but anyway, he ended up giving me a document. And it was from the Douglas Aircraft Company before it became McDonnell Douglas. And this was in the 1960s, and it was a document that dealt with uh, the fact that Douglas Aircraft was working on anti-gravity, and they were taking UFO seriously, and there was all this work. And the work was being headed up by Bob Wood, who's uh, Ryan Wood's father. They're running the upcoming okay, yeah. Saucer Conference. Yeah. And Bob, Bob Wood had been in aviation engineering. He'd been in this business for, for years. And here he was in the 1960s working for Douglas Aircraft, and they were working on anti-gravity, and he's got uh, a project that was... Uh, that, that had a, a project name to it and all this sort of stuff. And here I have a document that says Douglas Private on, on, the, on the cover page. And I said to the guy, okay, very interesting. And, uh, you know, eventually he started to leak me material. And I said, well, why would you leak this material? Yeah. And basically it came down to I figured, oh, here we go. It, you know, I finally got lucky and somebody's going to leak me the document. <laughs> What it turned out was uh, that one of the people who had been working on the project was been high, had been hired to do interviews with abductees. So one of the things Douglas Aircraft under Bob Wood had determined was let's talk to contactees and abductees and see if they can provide any inside information on what UFO technology is all about. So they had done an interview. They got a private uh, investigator to do an interview with an abductee, and this was the guy had all the documents. He had his own set of documents and that he had lived in a farm, I believe it was in Washington State, and that he had died, and he had left all the documents that were found in a barn. 
And the person who found the documents figured, oh, this would be great. We'll get pals of money for this. And they put them on eBay. And the fellow who was leaking the documents to me bought them on eBay for $32. Oh, man. Here's 175 pages of documents from the, the Douglas Aircraft Company. Now, when I went, I went to, to Bob Wood and I said, well, okay, this guy's leaking me documents and uh, they got your name on them. Yeah. And uh, they come from Douglas Aircraft. And he basically said, yeah, the story is true. The, these documents are legitimate. And he was very upset that this guy would uh, leak the documents. And I said, well, you know, and I told him the story about the eBay thing, and he that he was still very upset about these documents leaking. And I figured, like everything else, there's no point in keeping this thing secret. So we put them, uh, and they're now online. You can get them. I, can't, I haven't got the exact address, and I don't think you can even link it. I'll probably put a link on my website where you can actually. Uh, they're they're all on online right now. And basically, it was a private. It was like a Wilbur Smith type thing. Bob Wood was very interested in, in UFOs, and he'd gotten access to do UFOs for. Douglas, he wanted to do some work on this, and he had gotten uh, the okay from Douglas Aircraft, but he wasn't being, it wasn't a Douglas Aircraft uh, deal, it was sort of like their private thing, they were allowed sort of to like work on Sort of like the Smith uh, Observatory. Yeah, and they were allowed to work on this sort of thing, but Douglas wasn't really backing the program, even yeah. though the documents were there. So it, it was one of these things where it sort of, in the end, it was very interesting documents, but it really wasn't a legitimate government document with what you're looking for. You're looking for a, a government document that says, yes, this, this thing's for real, and it's stamped. You can actually get the, the track the document back and actually find it in an archives. And most of the documents, they're, they're very interesting, but you can't track them back to an archives and sort of end up, uh, nobody knows where they came from and this kind of stuff, and so you can never prove it. Yeah. And, and so the government has protected that kind of stuff. They've protected the bodies, the hardware, all this sort of stuff, and they love to, us to tell the stories, and they put in extra stories to uh, get the thing going and to, to distort it. And what they've done, I, I found, is the way they've used it is, is to get prominent people who s seem to get respect in the UFO community, and then they st start feeding them the material, which does two things. It releases the material the way they want it released, and it also burns the researcher. Now, they did, oh. the prime example of this was Bill Moore. Bill Moore and Stanton Freeman worked on the Roswell crash, and they put out the book, and uh, Stanton wasn't really involved, but Bill put out the book in 1979 on the... Roswell crash, and it was a best-selling book. It was legitimate. It looked like this was it. They were going to break the story. He was getting a lot of publicity. He was getting a lot of interviews, and it was a hardcore thing. They had a, a, a intelligence officer from there. It, it wasn't the typical uh, so-and-so and said, you know, it was yeah. it actually had names, places, dates, interviews, and, and here it was a crash, and it became very, very popular, and he gained an awful lot of respect. Respect in the, in the early 1980s, Bill Moore was one of the most respected U, UFO researchers in the community, and so the government was in a situation where they wanted to distort the story of Roswell, and they also needed to build, burn Bill Moore. And Bill Moore tells the story, and I knew Bill Moore very well when it was going on, and I basically told him that I thought he was being set up, and he was, Bill Moore, he was a very smart guy, probably the smartest guy, except for Stan Friedman, the smartest guy I've ever met in ufology, knew what he was doing, he was very meticulous about his research, about his interviews and stuff like this, but he had a huge ego. He figured he was the only guy who knew what was going on, and that's the way the government set him up. They, he was on a tour for the Roswell book, and they set him up, and they said, you know, you're the only guy in the, in the field who knows what they're talking about. And, of course, Bill Moore took the bait. He believed this was true, so he was contacted once in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was contacted at uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, where the strategic 
Air Command bases uh, by there, and he was contacted by a guy of the Defense Intelligence Agency who was uh, a high-ranking guy who knew the whole story. He was called the Falcon. It wasn't Richard Doty. It was a guy that, that was out of the Defense Intelligence Agency who was in his 60s at the time and had a Slavic name. We never did identify who this guy was. Bill Moore said, if you can ever name him, I'll confirm who he is. But uh, we knew that this was going on. Basically, they started to feed him material, and they warned him. They said a lot of this material will be disinformation. you got to weed through it yourself, and you got to determine what's real and what's not real. And they fed him a bunch of stuff, and it would be 90% true, 10% false. And Bill Moore made the mistake of releasing the, the IMG-12 document. They thought they had a research. They had. They thought they had it um, It cleared up. They had a couple things to to sort of figure out about whether, whether this is true, whether that's true, all the names seem to fit. And what they did, on the other hand, was they went to Tim Good, who was a major researcher in, in England, and they put the pressure on Tim Good. They gave him the same documents. Tim Good was coming out in his book, uh, UFOs Above Top Secret, and he was going to release the MJ-12 document, which forced Bill Moore's hand. He had to release the MJ-12 document. He released it too soon before they'd done the actual research, and they ended up in a quagmire of people believing that Bill Moore had had, had forged the document. That was the end of Bill Moore. He basically uh, was wiped out. He was He's now no, no longer a researcher, was so contaminated and destroyed by this whole story that he pulled out of the UFO thing, and that's what they do. So they'll set up, if you get a good story like Linda Howe or something, you get something, they'll come along and they'll feed you even more stuff related to what you have to distort anything that's good that you have so that you have 10 good things, but you've got 100 pieces of information so you can't tell and nobody else can tell what you've got that you found that was real. And that's how they do it. And so they're doing two things. They're releasing the story indirectly, and they're also burning researchers so that nobody can get credibility to the point where anybody's actually going to believe them. So how are they getting these documents out now? Are they just like dropping them off or do they have like conduit type characters who are like... Well, each story, each story is different. For example, the, the Majestic documents, a lot of them were, were mailed or uh, um, Cooper was one of the people. Um, his father was with the... Um, with, who worked for Lundahl. He worked for the National Photographic Interpretation Center, had worked on the UFO stuff on photographic interpretation. His son was very interested in UFOs, uh, Tim Cooper. And Tim Cooper, as a young kid, he tells the story that, that when his father had all these people over about talking about UFOs, high-ranking people, people who were in the know, that he was very interested, he wanted to know these sort of stories. And later on in his life, Tim Cooper started to file uh, Freedom Information Act requests with the U.S. government to ask for material, and he'd file stuff, and he, they would send him stuff. When he would see, he'd ask for one thing, and the CIA, for example, would send him a bunch of documents as, with, a, with a letterhead, and not with a letterhead, but with the, with the stamp that you could tell was actually coming from the CIA, but the minute you open the envelope, then it's over because you can't you can't prove that the documents came from the CIA. You can say they came from those envelopes, the sealed envelope that that showed a CIA uh, meter stamp on it. Yeah. But uh, so Tim Cooper received lots of these documents, hundreds and thousands, uh, whatever. I don't know how many of the three thousand plus pages, but a great deal of it came through Tim Cooper. So of course everybody said, well, Tim Cooper made this up. One of the documents appeared to be typed on one of his typewriters, and then. The UFO community, as we always do, we eat our young, we destroy our people, and everybody destroys the, the story and says this guy's a, totally making up. And we head off to the next story and, and the next researcher that we're going to destroy. Instead of looking at the fact that you may say these documents are phony, and I always look at the other side of the story. 
There's 3,000 pages of documents. This is not a, a person. This is an agency putting this stuff out. Why did someone put out 3,000 pages of documents? What does it mean? What do they want yeah. to tell us? What can we tell from these documents? Yeah. There's a story behind the story, and that's what I always look at. I'm not really interested in the document, whether it's real or whatever. I'm always trying to figure out who leaked the document and where the documents are coming from. Because if you can find out where the documents are coming from and who the person's source is, I always try to find who the source is, yeah. where, where these documents came from, try to filter them back, as to, and then you're going to find out who's running the show because that's where they're coming from. And, uh, and a lot of times you can sort of get close. You know it's the National Security Agency and you know that uh, there's a vault there and that a lot of this stuff is being pushed out of there. Uh, you know that the president may not be involved, depending what, whether it's a Republican or, or a Democrat. But you, you sort of stay away from actually getting into a document and then saying, I believe this document is legitimate, the document is telling us anything. Instead, you, you, you try to get to the people who are running the show. That's basically what I try to do. There you have it, folks. Grant Cameron, that's part one of two. Next week, we discuss more about disclosure and his attempts to get answers from candidates in political races. The 2008 election, Hillary Clinton, perhaps, uh, being a conduit for UFO disclosure. We discuss Grant's problems at the border getting out of Canada back in September and what he thinks about it now that it's been about two months since it happened. And tons of other stuff, and that's going to be next week on Banal of America Audio, Season 1, November 19th, 2005. I hope you come back and check it out. I want to thank Grant for sitting down and talking to me for so long. Obviously, I want to uh, plug his website again here, www.presidentialufo.com. This is a fantastic website. There's tons of information there. you got to check it out. You're going to be just completely blown away by all the stuff he has there and all the research he's done. I want to thank Leslie and Chiron for all your help with Banal of America Audio Season 1 in getting this series out to the people. And I want to thank all you great people out there listening today. You'll be hearing from me next week with Part 2 of 2, the Grant Cameron interview on Banal of America Audio Season 1.